Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's talk retail. Because right, we had Bed Bath & Beyond, which, by the way, is based in Union, New Jersey, in my backyard. We've got Amazon laying off people. So retail Or jobs, right? Yeah. I, they, I mean, yeah, they, we, we don't know. That's right. Yeah. That's 18,000 jobs. So let's round table a little bit here on the retail space. We can do that with Poonam Goyle. She covers all the retail stuff. Salesforce. Don't forget Salesforce. Intelligence. Yep. We'll talk about that. Uh, and John Edwards, the third team leader, for, he covers the U.S. consumer retail luxury space. Um, John, thanks so much for coming here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. You get a gold Hero. star, my friend. Um, <laughs> talk to us about Bed Bath & Beyond. This is just there's, they have some news today about a going concern issue. Yep. Um, is this just poor management, or is this some symptom of just greater retail? Do you think? Yeah, it's it's a combination of things. I mean, it's it's definitely um, you know uh, they're they're affected by the things that are affecting uh, retail broadly, but they do have some company-specific problems that have been plaguing them for years and have not really gotten any better. Uh, you know, one of, one of the main issues they had was that they uh, made this big push toward private label goods, you know, which in theory, uh, you know, is, is um, a positive for a, a retailer if they can get uh, people buying, you know, private label products that they create themselves that obviously uh, boost their margins by, uh, you know, um, reducing the things that they have to buy from others. But, but is it, are they, are they Kirkland? Well, level products. <laughs> that's that is that's the issue. They were not Kirkland level <laughs> products. Uh, no, they they had uh, just a variety of, of problems with uh, with introducing these products uh, under a you know now three CEOs ago. Uh, they brought in uh, a guy Mark Tritton from uh, from Target, uh, with uh, who had you know extensive experience, successful experience there with private label. But, uh, you know, he had edu uh, execution problems at Bed Bath & Beyond as well. You know, he, he in some ways tried to apply too much of the sort of identical target playbook to, uh, you know, to Bed Bath, which didn't have the internal infrastructure to support a lot of his, uh, his goals. So, so Poonam, I want to bring you in here, you know, as we're talking about Bed Bath & Beyond, I'd love to just pull it back the lens a little bit and just talk about retail in general. Give us your sense of just... The consumers seem strong. I mean, we got some good jobs data again today. Um, it seemed like the holiday season was pretty good. Um, I'd love to get your assessment, Poonam, because you see so many retail companies. You talk to so many of those investors. What are you hearing about the, the environment out there? 
Yeah, so the environment is still mixed, Paul, really. If you think about what we saw over the holiday, we did have a good holiday season. Adobe just came out with their e-commerce um, numbers that holiday sales were up 3.5%, and that's better than they had estimated. So overall, good. But, you know, I think when we start to see earnings later this month and into February, there will be mixed reads because, remember, there was a snowstorm right in the northeast right ahead of the Christmas season, which probably truncated a lot of the sales that would have been there and may have really prompted more gift card sales. Or what, because people so couldn't get out and get to the stores? They couldn't get out, and whatever was coming from online probably couldn't make it there because of the snowstorm. So really a double whammy there where you couldn't shop online and you couldn't shop in stores. Outside of that, the consumer, yeah, they're holding up, but they're spending where they want to spend. So really you have to be the brand that they're seeking for you to get the business and do well. And and there are brands out there that are that are doing well. You know, We think Etsy is one of them on the online space that continues to drive shoppers to its website because it's unique in what it offers and there's really no one else like them. Yeah, it's you know, this is interesting. I've been looking lately I've been trying to focus on buying products that are made in America or you know, made in Europe, like a leather jacket. Well, for example, those are handmade in Scotland. But if you look I'm on Amazon, I've noticed, Poonam, nearly everything on Amazon is made in China. I don't know why I don't just drop the middleman and go straight to Alibaba. Because <laughs> Jeff Bezos' factory is in China. Um, then I discovered Etsy, where you can find things that are made um, by people who get a working wage or at least run their own businesses, which made me happy, but the user experience isn't quite nearly as good. Um, is, there, is there any uh, sense that deglobalization is coming to Amazon? Are they, are they at all affected by the U.S.-China, uh, the poor trade relationship? I mean, I think all of retail is affected by that. It's not just Amazon, right? We import most of what we consume is imported. And China is a big area where we are dependent on. So that doesn't just impact Amazon. It impacts all of retail, really. Yeah, I don't mind importing stuff if if, um, I'm importing it from uh, a producer that pays a decent wage, maybe uses union labor, you know, where I'm not worried about sweatshops or kids making this stuff. Hey, um, hey, John, I, yeah. I know in your beat you cover ret- uh, luxury. Sure. The, I, I can't imagine. I'm so surprised how luxury remains so strong, cycle mm-hmm. in, cycle out. Mm-hmm. What are we hearing from the luxury brands these days? Uh, yeah, they, they continue to, to hold up. I mean, I, I think what we're starting to see is, um, <clears throat> you know, some of the entry-level uh, luxury goods, you know, some of your sort of accessories, your belts, your, you know, uh, Gucci shower shoes, your things like oh that, are uh, you know starting to weaken a bit because uh, you know those are <coughs> the luxury customers who are most exposed to uh, you know feeling the pinch of inflation. But uh, you know uh, the rich are still rich and uh, you know still want what they want. You know as as Putin was saying, they're not going to Bed Bath and Beyond though, John. They, they you sure cover both luxury and Bed Bath and Beyond. We, we cover it all. Yeah, <laughs> sure do. I, I was thinking about uh, in in the bigger picture of the whole. Wall Wall Street bets phenomenon, the meme stock thing mm-hmm. that we covered a couple of years ago. Are there companies out there that should have gone bust but didn't <laughs> because of buyers of stonks with their <laughs> with their stimmies? I mean, I you know, I certainly can't call out any by name, but yeah, you could probably say that there are some companies whose uh, 
poor performance was papered over for a while by the fact that uh, yeah they uh, they got uh, you know caught in the meme wave and uh, rode that uh, as long as they could. It's funny the Bed Bath and Beyond uh, near me is right next to the GameStop in this oh. little strip mall that you want to yes. kind of avoid at all costs, <laughs> right? You know exactly. There's a harsh fluorescent lighting everywhere yep. if yeah. they leave the lights on at all yeah. and. All right, some uh, news just crossing the Bloomberg terminal. I want to get it out there. Uh, Putin orders January 6th, 7th ceasefire in Ukraine, uh, the Kremlin says. We'll have more reporting on that, but that gets your attention there. Putin, um, in terms of the retail space here, now that we're kind of through the holiday season, give us a sense of kind of how the inventory levels are. I know that was an issue for a lot of retailers, leading them to maybe really be aggressive on some of the promotions here. How are inventories looking? Inventories are still a little bloated. While sales were good, they entered inventories really high. So we think January will be the key month for them to really press on promotions and clear out all that inventory to make room for spring goods. But this is the, this is a clearance month for retail, and we expect retailers to push as much inventory as they can out of their system this month. Is it going to be harder for or is someone like Target, who had a difficult time managing inventory, going to be doing more discounting? There will be more discounting across retail right now just because the inventories have to get out. And even if you are lean on inventory, if your neighbor is discounting aggressively, in order for you to get wallet share, you also need to increase your promotional activity. That's just how retail works. Hey, John, uh, lastly, are there still too many stores in the U.S., do you think? Because we've seen so many store closures, and Poonam's been you know, writing a lot about that in her research, and we probably had that accelerate during the pandemic. What's, what do you hear from some of the retailers you guys cover? Yeah, well, it's, um, you know, for one thing, there are still stores being opened, but uh, most of them are dollar stores. Okay. Uh, that's that's an area where the physical retail is still expanding rapidly. Wow. Um, but, uh, yeah, a lot of the, uh, you know, sort of uh, mid-level and higher-end um, retailers are becoming more uh, selective about where they place their uh, their physical locations. And, uh, you know, we also see uh, companies doing things like converting parts of yep. their uh, stores to online fulfillment centers, you know, because... Yeah, there's uh, too much online stuff. Yeah. I'm looking for pickleball rackets. Sure. I can't who find isn't? them in a physical store. Who you've follows got to fads get them better than, from... Who follows fads better than you? You've got to get <laughs> them from Jeff Bezos who get some sources them directly now, in China. All right. Do you, do you wear the leather jacket when you're playing pickleball? Probably. <laughs> John Edwards III, he's a team leader, U.S. Consumer Retail for Bloomberg News, and Poonam Goyle covers all things for Bloomberg intelligence. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Out in Las Vegas, Matt, there's a little technology conference called the Consumer Electronics Show. It gets a couple hundred thousand people out there to see all the new cool gadgets and stuff like that. 
it's really become, I think, an automotive conference. They have such a huge presence there, the automotive industry at the CES uh, convention. Martin Fisher, a board member at ZF Group, uh, and Bloomberg Technology host Ed Ludlow. He's out in Vegas. He joins us. They both join us to discuss uh, what's going on out there from the auto perspective. Uh, Martin Fisher, thanks so much for joining us here. ZF Group, the world's largest automotive supplier mobility company. What are you guys doing at CES this year? Why is that important? Why is this convention important to you guys? I mean, CES for us has always been the place to present our large scale innovations and also some smaller smart ideas. And that's what we are up to this year as well. So we focus on the key trends of automated driving and electrification and have good news to present in both areas. So what... Well, first of all, I got to say, your resume looks awesome. From a car guy perspective, <laughs> you were at VD, Siemens VDO. You were the CEO at Hella. I was just searching for some of their products online. General manager at Borg Warner, famous for making the turbos. ZF Group makes the best transmissions in the world. Um, what a sweet career you've had what i mean what gets boring right what what gets you excited what are you what are you yeah, what are you showing at ces yeah the whole transformation that we go through is really what keeps me exciting and we have a couple of highlight topics out here um, we are revealing later today our latest generation autonomous shuttle and um, that's really for me as an engineer and uh, with that uh, strong automotive background really a highlight um, autonomous shuttle means we bring up a vehicle that can host about 20 people it's electrically driven and it's fully autonomous so it's going to blend nicely and safely into the traffic and um, that's our highlight presentation for today who who who's your customer there is it like the walt disney disney world so they can shuttle people around or is it who's, who's actually, corporate campus yeah, a yeah. college campus a C, i mean vegas seems like a good place you can ferry ed ludlow back and forth from uh from the uh, fairgrounds to his suite <laughs> at the Bellagio or yeah absolutely no those are already very good use cases plus it is also in addition to the public transportation systems so when you go into metropolitan areas and you have subway systems conventional bus systems what we fall short of is typically the last mile transportation solutions so how do I get right. from the subway station into my neighborhood and that's where these shuttles can help Hey, so all of the business cases are present there. Ed Ludlow, you're the technology reporter for Bloomberg News. You've seen it all. You you have to be at CES from start yeah. to finish. What's your what's your sense of what's kind of some of the highlights out there? No, it's, it's interesting to have Martin on, on the program. Good morning to you, Martin. You know, Matt's right. He, he has a brilliant CV. Uh, ZF so important in in global automotive supply chain. For me, like the the, the theme this year is. Let's get real, guys. Let's get real in this industry. You know, when I was here in 2020, we were talking about robo-taxis and we were talking about autonomy and the bubbles burst a little bit in that time. But I think what's interesting about ZF is that they, they have a track record with existing shuttles that work in very narrowly defined settings, right? Specific lanes in geofence locations like campuses. And Martin, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that, you know, this is kind of an extension of that, right? You're talking about thousands of shuttles with beef over a number of years. Although I'd be interested to know how soon, how many years is this going to happen? Because that, that's really the conversation here at CEF. Like, let's, let's start announcing some things that are actually going to materialize into the real world. Yeah, no, you're right on. It's about scaling up. And that's how we approach the whole shuttle business. As you said, we had first solutions in operations for years now. 
and they are in dedicated lanes. So a controlled environment, but for us to experience the first steps. And now we go into mixed traffic operations with the lately announced shuttle. For your question, um, how is that going to hit the market? Also out in Vegas yesterday, we announced a new partnership with Beep. Beep is an operator for such autonomous shuttles. And um, that agreement enables us to deliver a couple of thousand shuttles into the US market. In terms of timing, we will have first vehicles delivered in 2025, and then I'm going to ramp up in 2026. Are you talking with any governments? I mean, I know that um, sitting right here in Manhattan, there's a bus that just every day goes back and forth along Central Park, doesn't change the route, isn't going very far, takes about 20 or 30 people. Uh, why don't you talk to the MTA? Yeah, no, that's happening. And um, we do it here in the U.S. through partners, through Beep in this case. Um, in Europe, where we are home-based, uh, we go also straight into these uh, public government discussions. So it's a new avenue for us. And in Vegas, what's the feel there? Is it crowded? Is it, Are people back? Is it pre-pandemic, do you think? Yeah, yeah, I uh, think it is. I think, you know, I need to talk to the organizers about the official number. And actually, I'll be honest with you, the CTA are pretty cagey about it and have been since 2020. But, I, you know, my sense of being here is that we're back to full send CES. I think for like our global audience, right, you have to appreciate what it is. It is a lot of fun. You know, this is Las Vegas, right? Um, I won't tell you what I did last night, but I did a lot of work <laughs> late into the evening. Okay, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But, uh, you know, a lot of bankers, that I, there are bankers here. Yep. There are investors here. There are, there are executives. And I bet you Martin won't give us any names, but it's a great chance to speed date. Everyone that you want to see, you can see in the space of three days. And that's really what it's about. It's about getting all your client meetings in, doing some deals. Maybe Martin's done some last night over dinner. I don't know. We'll have to uh, see. It's a question for him. But, all right. but, but that's kind of the vibe, too. All right. Good stuff. Martin Fisher, member of the board of management at ZF Group and uh, Ed Ludlow at a Bloomberg News uh, in Vegas at the CES. Trevithick, head of investment grade credit strategy at Payton and Regal. So, Natalie, how's my analysis hold up? It can't be any worse. 2023 has got to be better. What's your outlook? Yeah, you're absolutely right. We're at a much better starting point here on bonds. You can buy one year T bills for four and a half percent or corporate bonds for five and a half percent. So, we think fixed income can go back to be, being the safe haven asset class. Um, as people expect and deliver nice positive returns in 2023. So um, we're talking about treasuries, but what about corporates? Um, obviously, fixed income is a very big universe. What do you like the best? Yeah, corporate bonds are very attractive, particularly in the front end of the curve. Uh, you can get yields five and a half, even six percent in investment grade credit. That's nearly double what you can get in high yield a couple of years ago and high yield yielding, you know, around nine percent. So given a strong fundamental backdrop, corporations really aren't in trouble. They may see some margin compression, which is hurting their equity performance. But from a bond perspective, they're still quite strong. So we think investing in credit is a nice place for investors to park their money if they're worried about a recession or uh, inflation and volatility in the equity markets. Well, and as you go further out the risk spectrum, you got to start to worry about uh, defaults. Apparently, covenants have gotten a lot weaker over the past few years as investors search for uh, hunt for yield. Um, what are your concerns in 2023 RE defaults? 
Yeah, we really don't see defaults moving materially higher off of their current level. Maybe they get up to 4%. And there are some concerns in the triple, B, uh, triple C sector. But for the most part, high-yield companies have extended their maturities. So they don't really have a hanging debt wall. So it's pretty expensive for them to issue right now. And most companies can hold off to issuing until 2024 or later. So we don't think the default story is a big story for 2023. And most of these companies can uh, weather a mild recession. Natalie, in terms of you know an investment grade side, um, what are some of the sectors that you guys are, are are favoring right now? We still favor some of the defensive sectors such as pharmaceuticals and healthcare, utilities. But we also think the banking sector has cheapened up materially, and these banks still have strong balance sheets. So we're comfortable that they aren't going to see the kind of uh, financial crisis they saw in the Great Recession, even if we were to go into another recession. And they offer pretty compelling yields. In duration, how far are you willing to go out here? Because as you mentioned, on a two-year note, you can get 4.46% here in a uh, two-year treasury. So on the corporate credit side, how far are you guys willing to go out? We are willing to buy 30 years, uh, typically higher quality bonds there. There is quite an inverted treasury curve, you know, as two years are yielding nearly 4.5% and 30 years are only at 3.8%. But investors want to lock in these higher yields. Because if they think that the Fed's going to pivot eventually, maybe not this year, but and be cutting rates, they want to lock in these longer yields uh, further out the curve. So we are seeing quite a lot of demand for corporates in 10 and 30 years. Yeah, we are hearing uh, more and more people talk about the possibility of a pivot not coming in 2024, until 2024. What's your view? We agree with that view, but despite how hard the Fed uh, tries to deliver a hawkish signal, investors just aren't buying it. They seem to be in the camp that inflation is coming down, the Fed's getting it under control, and we aren't going to keep rates higher for longer. So, you know, we had a little bit of a rate reversal today, but what we've seen consistently since uh, the beginning of November is that rates are moving lower. Natalie, when you go talk to your clients, what's kind of some of the big issues that they're asking you? Again, 2022 was such a, you know, really difficult year for fixed income investors. They've never seen it before. What are they asking you these days? Most investors understand what happened in 2022, given the extreme raise in interest rates. And investors are more looking for opportunities right now, asking where in credit market should they get involved? Just because we do expect the volatility to continue, particularly in equity markets, and they are viewing it as a safe haven asset class once again. I'm excited, you know, because for the past buy some bonds. couple of decades, I've been thinking my whole future relies on the stock market. And now it seems like I can lock in yeah. some real returns and then sleep easier. Exactly. Two-year treasury is 4.5%. Why not? Am, am, I, am I off base here, Natalie? I mean, is this the case? I'm, you know, I'm 49 years old. Whoa. I happen to have a young kid, so I got <laughs> to work for the next at least 20 years. But um, is that the situation people my age are going to be in? Are they going to start investing in fixed income and, and not have to worry so much about the volatility of the stock market? Exactly. It's sleep at night. You can get 5% just in coupons alone. And if you actually do believe the Fed's going to pivot and start cutting rates even next year, then you can have the positive total returns from declining interest rates and price appreciation on top of that 5%. So I think we're looking at mid-single-digit returns in, uh, in credit this year and maybe high single-digit to double digits in the years ahead. Are your portfolio managers, are they kind of running recession scenarios here where they have to really start thinking about covenants and interest coverage and 
you know, that, that kind of thing? Are they running those recession models kind of right now to, in, in case we do have some issues? Absolutely. And we're always looking at those contingencies and evaluating it, evaluating it on a bond by bond basis. But we really don't think that's going to be a major concern. So we do like having a defensive mix in our portfolios, but we're looking to extend out the risk spectrum and credits where we feel pretty confident. You got to want to push on covenants a little bit more. Um, am I right that they've become a little bit too, uh, well, I guess, advantageous to the borrower over the past couple of years? Yes, borrowers have been getting away with a lot. So that's something our analyst team really focuses on when we meet with management teams is pushing back on covenants. And we're more than happy to not participate in deals where we don't think they're strong enough. Natalie, you mentioned, how often do your analysts meet with analyst teams these days post, you know, uh, post-pandemic? With management, management teams. Yeah, with management teams. Are they, are they traveling to come see you in Los Angeles? Are you going to conferences? How do you s interact with management teams these days? Yeah, we're doing both. So it's picking up again with in-person meetings, but they still do a lot of virtual meetings via Zoom. But the in-person meetings, conferences that uh, management teams traveling to our offices picked up a lot. All right, good stuff. Natalie uh, Trevithick, head of investment grade uh, credit strategy at Payton and Regal. Um, they're based in Los Angeles at one of the great office towers in Los Angeles, 333 South Grand Avenue. You got like all the big firms there have been there at various times. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Greifeld spends her entire weekend slaving away on her Cats and Coins newsletter. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. Katie Greifeld, cross-asset reporter, joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. First of all, when you do your dressage riding thing mm -hmm. on the horse, you have a saddle, right? Oh, a, a big time. Big time saddle. But it's not a cowboy John Wayne saddle. No, it's uh, a dressage saddle. It's You can tell it's a dressage saddle because it has a really high back. Okay. It's kind of like sitting in a bucket because you really want to have a firm base okay. when you ride. All right, good stuff. We yeah, were Matt, Matt and I it. were just talking about that. We we weren't sure how that all, yeah. all, all played out. Like but what it, when it, you when you, say you rope a calf and you've got to tie tie yeah. it to your saddle, what do you do? If there's a calf in the in the dressage ring, something went wrong, but <laughs> I would say a western saddle is like a couch. Like that's a comfortable saddle, but a dressage saddle it's like a bucket, you know. You're really sitting in there. All You're right. strapped in. You want yeah, they want you guys falling off. Um all right, I want to talk crypto here. Who is Barry Silbert, and do I care who this guy is? Oh, you man. definitely care who, who Barry is Silbert is. He is the founder of Digital Currency Group. It is. It was once valued at $10 billion. It's this huge crypto conglomerate. The reason you're hearing so much about Barry Silbert right now is because the, the companies that DCG owns, it has uh, Grayscale, which has the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. GBTC. Exactly, which okay. is in a lot of... Uh, well, you know, they how much would, Bitcoin does the Gray, Grayscale Bitcoin Trust own? At one point, it held like three percent of all outstanding supply of Bitcoin. So which it's is, a it's a massive amount of money. But the thing about it is, it's trading at a massive discount. Massive to net asset value. Like if they own, I, I'll, let's say, a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin, um, the whole thing is only worth five hundred million. Okay. 
Okay. Yeah. So and shareholders are upset because they can't get their their Bitcoin out because it doesn't have redemptions. Uh, Grayscale is actually getting sued by a hedge fund right now. Fir Tree Capital is suing Grayscale over uh, the discount. They're saying that they mismanaged the trust, et cetera, et cetera. So we'll see if that goes anywhere. But there's starting to be some like really long shot activist campaigns to try to oust Grayscale as the manager of this trust. Again, these are long shots, uh, mm -hmm. but We'll see. It just speaks to the fact that there's this bubbling discontent over what's happening at Grayscale, one of the DCG companies. The other one that you're hearing a lot about is Genesis. So that's a lending, uh, crypto lending company owned by DCG. Actually, I don't know if you guys like were following over the weekend, but uh, no. Gemini, the Winklevi twins. Well, oh, actually, yeah. It was just one Winklevi. It was, it was Cameron. Yeah, Cameron Winklevoss. He wrote a really heated letter, an open letter to Barry Silbert, because Gemini, they say that they're owned $900 million in customer assets, uh, basically in limbo at at Genesis, and they haven't been able to make satisfying contact with Barry Silbert. So there's a lot you of You can understand getting... why Cameron's angry, right? Yeah. Because that's not just his money he's got clients who are probably angry with him oh yeah um and they're actually they have their own lawsuit on their hand they're being sued by their customers so the way that cameron sees it uh the what he alleges is that barry silbert has done some serious commingling of uh, funds i've heard that mm. term before and we know that commingling is no bueno that so. is a big accusation uh that's that definitely what i mean it was a long letter i read every word well cameron says that uh silbert's dcg borrowed 1.675 billion dollars from genesis and uh silbert responded no we have not borrowed 1.675 billion dollars from genesis and we make every interest payment on time so kind of implying we have borrowed money but not that much money or right. at least not that exact amount yeah that was a little uh like confusing. how much then have you borrowed is it 1.75 billion is it only 1 billion like, i would love us. to know there's plenty yeah. who would love to know not just reporters really everyone in the crypto industry would love to know but they actually gave silbert uh, a deadline here, Cameron Winklevoss, he said that uh, he wants some sort of public commitment that uh, Silbert and DCG is going to work together to solve this problem by January 8th. That is three days from now. What happens on January 8th? I don't know. I don't know. All right, let's bring in Barry Ritholtz. He's a host of Masters in Business uh, on Bloomberg Radio, uh, Chairman and Chief Investment Officer at Ritholtz Wealth Management. Barry, you know, we've been talking about crypto. It was certainly a compelling story broadly defined uh, in 2022. Well, you know what I, let's ask Barry about commingling. So Barry, how yes. much money do you borrow from <laughs> the clients at Ritholtz Wealth Management without telling them about it? You know, it, it's one of the first rules you learn when you get a, either a Series 7 or a six, Series 65. Don't commingle funds, never borrow money from clients. That's verboten. You know, you are here to provide a service to the clients. They are not here to provide a line of credit to you. And it's astonishing that we continue to see these same sort of things pop up all over the place. Although, to be fair, you know, crypto is unregulated. It's not arguably a security. A lot of these companies are headquartered outside of the United States. So, you know, as much as people want to blame Gary Gensler, this is out of his jurisdiction. 100% agree. I mean, um, everyone complains that the SEC hasn't done enough in terms of FTX, but FTX.com was located in the Bahamas. The right. SEC doesn't have jurisdiction over it. And by the way, even if Gensler did, 
Um, assuming that there was some kind of fraud committed, that there was money taken from clients, when that that's already illegal. It's not like right, there's no regulation right. against that. Right. Um, by the way, uh, in terms of Sam Bankman Freed, to me, I kind of get it. I mean, he's a little kid. Mm -hmm. He's clearly what? different. <laughs> he's a what? young person, and he's a very different kind of person. So if you tell me like he didn't know the rules or whatever, I. I right. feel like when, it's possible. Someone when, like John Corzine, he knew the rules, right? Right. When, At when MF I used Global. to get pulled over in my 20s going 75 over the speed limit, I used to say <laughs> to the police, look, I'm a young kid. I don't know the rules. Let me go. And, and that worked beautifully. Well, look, the, my dad's there, a lawyer. He says if you don't know the law, you're allowed to break it. Yeah, really? that doesn't really, uh, that doesn't really work. <laughs> uh, ignorance is no excuse. And by the way, 31 is not a child. He's out of college for a decade. He has attorneys and accountants and CFOs. The fact that he said, oh, it'll be okay to, you know, borrow some money from, from clients, uh, you know, that's just wholly inexcusable. If that's what happened, right? We don't right. know we're yet. Still, exactly. We're still, that's what appears to have happened, but we don't know for sure yet. Can he? Barry's a lawyer too, by the way. I know. Yeah. Yep, he's uh, J.D. from the Cardozo School of Law, Yeshiva University, one of the good ones. Um, Katie, what's the feeling when you talk to folks in the crypto space? Is this a bump along the road of an evolution of an asset class, or is this something more fundamental when you see Sam Bankman-Fried, a major mm -hmm. exchange, maybe even some more uh, issues within this sector? Well, I mean, it feels like this is almost like a fork in the road. You have all these crypto companies. This is definitely a reckoning for the crypto companies. Then you have the hardcore believers, you know, own your keys. We're all about duh. the blockchain. No duh, right? <laughs> that's the whole point. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, and that's why- Own your keys? What's that mean for You the have world? to hold your own private key. You don't leave a whole bunch of crypto on- A centralized uh, exchange. A, a centralized exchange, but which, by the way, is located offshore. Right, so that you don't have jurist your own regulars don't have jurisdiction over it. So I mean, where do you keep it? So obvious. You, you keep, keep it, it in a cold wallet. Yeah, you keep What's it on a hard wallet? drive. On a hard drive, you keep it under your bed or in a safe or at your sister's house. I don't know, but you clearly don't keep it on an offshore exchange that is. I, I just I can't get over that. And that's um, why you're seeing. I mean, Coinbase. What a story! Downgraded again today. Now at uh, Cowan, and that's just. I mean. I remember if we turn back to early November when all this FTX news was breaking, there was a question out there. Isn't this good for Coinbase? You have one of their top competitors now out of the market, but there's this sort of migration away from these centralized exchanges by these true believers who maybe weren't even there in the first place. Now they're definitely not going to be going to a Coinbase to store up their money. And the normal retail average sort of crypto trader they're not in the market anymore. There are decentralized exchanges, but in terms of uh, you know what this says about crypto, fortunately for us, there's a market and an asset mm. that's priced. <laughs> so we can tell what people think about crypto. And guess what, Barry, the price of Bitcoin hasn't moved since November 7th, since the explosion of FTX. What does that tell you? That it's still worth $16,000 and change. I'll tell you what has moved since then, and, and that's been gold. And one of the things that's kind of fascinating, you, you recall the phrase early in, in crypto's history, millennial gold, that mm. a lot of the anti-central bank, anti-fiat currency, 
hey, we need hard assets, kind of abandoned precious metals and moved into crypto. Well, it looks like over the past, you know, three to six months, some frustration with crypto. First, the price decrease, which seems to be a regular occurrence with crypto, but then everything that's been going on with with issues of, of uh, you know, criminality and illegality and, and potentially theft seems to have given gold uh, an opportunity to catch a bid. And I just can't help but wonder if, if crypto is now stagnant because some of the true believers are going back to the yellow metal. It is <laughs> wild. I mean, I'm looking at gold's move. It's up 12%, over yeah. 12% since November 3rd. What a coincidence. Crypto yeah, the chart, up I, the chart is, I think, fascinating. On the other hand, you could say, uh, well, no, I think it's totally fascinating also um, in regards to Bitcoin. But a lot of people do think we're headed into a recession. I love Michael Burry's recent uh, post what on Twitter. He, he said that we're going to see disinflation or deflation in the second half of 2023. We're going to be in a recession by any way you measure it. And that not only is the Fed going to have to cut, but... Um, the government's going to have to deploy more fiscal stimulus. Now, to be fair, that's a very... Uh, that seems like an outlier. That's a very outlier and alarmist, sensationalist mm-hmm. view. But I love alarmist, sensationalism. <laughs> you know, that's so our job. So does Twitter. Yeah, that really plays on Twitter. So deflation, I mean, what does well in deflation? Do we have any sort of blueprint? I don't know. Barry, what's the deal with gold as an inflation hedge? And because it didn't seem to do that well when as we ramped up to 10% and change on the CPI. And do you want to own it if we're headed into a recession where the Fed's going to have to cut? So to me, gold seems to trade most correlated or really inversely correlated to the dollar. You know, we had a huge run-up in the U.S. dollar last year. That peaked and started to fall. That peaked sometime, I don't know, around the beginning of November. And remember, the dollar is the measuring stick for commodities, including gold. So as the dollar softens, price of gold goes up. When the measuring stick gets a little smaller, uh, it makes the measure a little, a little larger. So uh, to me, gold is, has always been a trading vehicle. It has never been a, um investment vehicle because... Mm-hmm. It doesn't produce any sort of cash flow. It doesn't produce any sort of uh, dividend. Arguably, you say the same thing about crypto. But at your mountain house where you keep like, you know, dozens of gallons of water and some shotguns, you have gold (laughs) bars there too, right? Listen, if if you're planning on existing in the uh, post-apocalyptic landscape and you're going to be trading bars of gold for food and water, I, I, I think we have lots of other problems that if you're that person though i think you probably also have some bitcoin doesn't it just fit with that sort of i would think so Uh, although it it doesn't because bitcoin is specifically tied to technology Mm. and so if you have a uh a a technology that uh um only works on the internet yeah no power happens in when there's no network no uh no infrastructure no electricity no internet Bitcoin ain't going to be a whole lot of anything then. So, so Barry, it, at the cocktail party this weekend, somebody comes up to you and says, is crypto real? Is Bitcoin real? Should I invest in this? What do you, what do you tell them? Uh, the same thing I've been saying for, for years and years, which is think of crypto like a large mega cap tech stock, like an Amazon or an Apple. 
it, it, it's not quite its own asset class yet. It's not quite um, something that has shown a whole lot of ability to diversify. It really seems to be highly correlated to uh, to equity prices. And, you know, we always tell people if you want to have a fun uh, account, you want to have a 5% mad money account to just do really dumb things that will not affect your long-term, quote-unquote, real money, well, have at it. But buy out-of-the-money call options, buy Bitcoin, play around with short Tesla, whatever you want to do. But, you know, that 5% is going to scratch your itch. And if it goes <laughs> to zero, you're done. You're tapped out, and you let you leave your real money alone. And that seems to have been a pretty good approach, especially for people who were chasing meme stocks in, yep. in 2021. Thank goodness it was only 5% of their accounts and not their real money. All right, Barry, great stuff. As always, Barry Rudholtz, founder of Rudholtz Wealth Management, host of Masters in Business. And Katie Greifold, Bloomberg News cross-asset reporter, uh, joining us here. We're talking a little bit of crypto. And, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried, he's pled not guilty. So it looks like we're going to trial sometime in October, I believe, is the date they've set to start that trial. We'll see if that happens. But that will be compelling theater, if none nonetheless. I mean, if nothing else, it'll be compelling drama, compelling theater, uh, as people try to get a sense of what happened at FTX uh, and Sam Bankman-Fried. The total economic output of U.S. Latinos was $2.8 trillion in 2020. Yet despite being a key driving force of the U.S. economy, experts say the capital isn't flowing toward the growth. According to the Latino Business Action Network, Hispanic-owned businesses have grown 44% in the last 10 years, compared to just 4% for non-Latinos. But less than 2% of the available venture capital funding in the U.S. goes into this cohort. This is the best economy in the world, the free enterprise system, but it largely excludes small businesses and minority-owned businesses even today. Ramiro Cavazos is the president and CEO of the United States Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. Then a big part of it, I think, is just uh, uh, relationships, it's networks. You know, I hate to say it, we're largely invisible. In order to make those connections, Ana Valdez, president and CEO of the Latino Donor Collaborative, says more VCs need to get out of their comfort zone. You need to start uh, reaching out to places where you actually never reach. People that may not be as well-versed, that may not come from your environment, that may not look like you, that may not talk like you, but that are, that are making a lot of money. Anthony Alcazar is finding himself in the middle of the struggle. His company, Mr. Tortilla, is number one on Amazon. They've expanded their product line and just opened a second factory. My projections are 30 million for 2023, 60 million for 2024, 100 million for 2025 and I can't get a fair shake. He says the offers he has received include a majority stake in his business. We worked a whole life for this. And so if I lose control ownership now, I can't guarantee that they're going to uphold the same philosophies and run our business the way we want to run it. That's why Latino venture capitalists and uh, banking and community lenders and CDFIs, Community Development and Finance Institutions, we got to get them to step up. Latitude Ventures is doing just that. The company recently launched a $100 million fund focused on Latino-founded early-stage businesses. We're looking hard. We're creating the pipeline. We're creating the visibility so that any Latino and Latina that has been shut out, that they can come here and they're going to get a fair 
Look, company president Sol Trujillo has his own prediction. My bet is between now and the end of the decade, a trillion dollars of capital should be flowing here so that we can grow GDP at a highly competitive rate versus doing it the same way. Valdez puts that growth into perspective. If Latinos got the same proportion of credit as whites are given, it would translate into adding 3.3 trillion of revenue of companies in this country. But it's not only venture capital funding. LBAN reports the odds of loan approval from national banks are 60% lower for Latino-owned businesses. Industry leaders say it comes down to diversification. It's a proportionate representation at all levels in the bank, from the board all the way to the C-suite, all the way to the executive branch, and then to the branches. Actress, singer, and entrepreneur Jennifer Lopez is looking to change the playing field. In 2021, Lopez launched Limitless Labs to raise funds for Latina entrepreneurs, including a partnership with Goldman Sachs. And this past June, Lopez partnered with Grameen America to help distribute $14 billion in loans to 600,000 Latina business owners by 2030. The future of this economy will depend on small businesses and Latino-owned businesses because uh, of sheer demographics. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, more than half of the total U.S. population growth between 2010 and 2020 came from Hispanics. And with Latino entrepreneurs starting small businesses faster than the rest of the startup population, the rising tide will lift all boats. In New York, I'm Lisa Mateo, Bloomberg Radio. All right, that's Bloomberg's business correspondent, Lisa Mateo. And she joins us now on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Lisa, fascinating story here. I mean, you know, the Hispanic population, I, I know a lot about it from an economic perspective, having done a lot of work with Univision over the years. I know it's a fast-growing uh, demographic, um, but access to capital has really been a challenge here. So historically, how have Hispanic businesses kind of financed their businesses? Just bootstraps, I guess? Yeah, bootstraps. They've, they've relied on family and friends. They've maxed out their credit cards. They've done yep. things like that, home equity. Um, and they've tried those small community banks. Right. The problem is the community banks are closing down and being replaced by the national banks. And so Stanford University, they, you know, they put out this annual report on Latino entrepreneur, entrepreneurship. They have one coming out actually next month. Um, and they just show that Latinos typically, the, the trend is is that their income is lower. So, so their credit score is lower. So what happens is they're paying higher interest rates for mm -hmm. these loans. They're at being asked for collateral um, and sometimes not being approved at all for them. So it's kind of this struggle back and forth about how they're going to get their business off the ground. A lot of it is cultural too. Um, in the Hispanic culture, sometimes, you know, you money is something you don't talk about. You okay. know, it's kind of under okay. the table, you know. And it's this it's this common misconception that they say, you know, puro cash, pure cash, like everything is cash. So it's now starting which to come around that they need more. Which is why, I mean, yeah. the credit scores can be lower just if you're not involved in the system. So if you don't have a bunch of credit cards, car loans, if you're not yes. borrowing, then you won't have a high grade. I think it's interesting because I think of the Latino community as, and I don't want to stereotype here, as being honest, hardworking, and reliable. And I feel like that's the common perceptions across uh, maybe just my uh, yeah. so, you know social circle, but um, why wouldn't banks extend more credit to them knowing that they're more likely to pay loans back than say your typical American white person in the middle of the country? Right, right, and that's the thing, that's the misconception is that 
well, they're not going to pay back. Um, and and apparently that is that is co incorrect. You know, there are a lot of studies out there, but talking with different people in the industry that Latinos are the number one people who will pay that back because we're more appreciative to be here. And I say we, sorry, my, my family's from Puerto Rico, so so it's a bit of So personal. that's the, the credit side, the debt side, um, but a lot of businesses obviously need growth capital, e equity capital. I know I know uh, noticed in your report, mm -hmm. you know, there are some people trying to really pull up some venture capital, some private equity for Latinos. Is that something that's having some traction? It is starting to get some traction. I mean, you see more people getting involved. Um, when you we talk to Latitude Ventures in the piece, and they're getting backing from people like JP Morgan Chase from Bank of America, like they're starting to get other people and, and corporations involved um, in this. And you see that a lot now with a lot of foundations. Foundations are starting to come up. There's Hispanics and Philanthropies, and they're starting to go to these corporations, get the money they need, and give them out to these communities. And you see it starting to pick up. I mean, with the pandemic, you saw a lot of PPP loans uh, that mm. started to pick up. You know, in 2021, the SAB changed. The, the rules there, yep. um, and they said they're more, they want more minority-owned businesses to be a part of it, and that really helped out um, as well. All right, great stuff. Great report. Lisa Mateo, business correspondent for Bloomberg Radio. We're so fortunate that she's joined Bloomberg. She's had a heck of a career in New York City media. I first came to know her, former reporter and anchor at PIX11, which is a great <laughs> independent TV station in New York City. She was there for, for many years, so we're glad she's at uh, Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash radio.